Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Cave, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Stand, book two, chapters 53 to 56. Let's start the show. Set entirely in Boulder, this section has two running themes. The first procedural and bureaucratic, as the group tries to recreate a functioning society after the apocalypse. And the second, dramatic, as characters go through some emotional moments. Nadine being rejected by Larry. Harold wondering what his role in Boulder is until Nadine seduces him. Franny worrying about her baby. The spies preparing to head west. And looming over all of it, Mother Abigail still missing. Sean, what did you think of this chunk of the book? Well, Jay, I'm glad you asked. As I've mentioned before, I tend to be a quick reader. And especially when I was reading Stephen King books when I was younger, I'd blow through them in a, in a couple of days. And as you know, we tend to break these books up into readable chunks so that we can have good and proper discussions upon, upon them. and. I realized that this section is a big drag. I did not like it at all. And let me enumerate the reasons why, Jay. Okay. So a lot of this is repetitive and boring. It's just the same stuff that we got previously. There's further discussion about rationality versus irrationality and how are we going to set up a new society and what role does America have involved in it? The characters continue to have some of the same discussions over and over again, and, and, and nothing seems to happen. The second thing is, we're really not focused on any of our main characters in this section. Stu doesn't really have any sort of role here other than leading the meetings, so gaveling it into order and, and calling it out. That's a very important role. I know. Like If you don't have Robert's Rules of Order in place, you'll, you'll never get anything done, so we need to have that. Larry's only meaningful moment is talking to the judge about sending the judge out to spy, which is a great scene, but it's focused mostly on the judge, not because of Larry. Right. Franny gets to uh, worry about her baby, and Nick's barely in it at all, except to, to send Tom out. So like our four main characters, the ones I think of as our main heroes, don't really have any sort of impact here. We're really focused on a lot of the secondary characters. Hmm. And even people like Harold, who might be main, He's a bad guy, in my opinion. So, eh, I, I don't consider him a main character. So we get a lot of Harold. We get a lot of Nadine. A lot of Nadine. Way too much Nadine. <laughs> Way too much flashbacks of Nadine. There's just not much happening with our main characters. And then the third thing is, there's no meaningful moments. Jay, in my head, when I think of The Stand, there's all sorts of like major things that happen. There's the early scene where Stu has to stop the gas tanks from blowing up as patient zero heads towards them. Yeah. There's Larry having to go through the Lincoln Tunnel. There's the Dark Man's first appearance. There's Randall Flagg trying to get Lloyd out of the jail. Like these are all things like immediately in my mind when I think of like the major beats of the story. They're getting to Mother Abigail, seeing Mother Abigail. And then there's things that happen after this section, like beep and beep and beep which we'll talk about in the future but those are all main things that i think about and for 1100 page book or whatever this is there are no meaningful moments in this section 
anything that is somewhat meaningful is either build up or actually doesn't happen. We don't find out what happens with the mother of Abigail. Harold, is he going to be a bad guy? Sorry, I went off there on a little bit of a rant. Yeah, I'm largely going to agree with you that this is repetitive. And we've even talked about King's guilt in his repetition before where we've got Larry has a terrible time going through a tunnel and then trash can man goes through a tunnel and it's really scary. Mm. This is clearly some of the signs of maybe some of those 400 pages that King added back into this edition should have stayed on the cutting room floor. It is kind of a drag that we didn't really spend much time with any of the most important characters of the the book. And the thing is, this wouldn't feel so bad if we didn't commit to reading nearly 120 pages of this book. And in that very large chunk of content, we didn't encounter all these things that you you brought out. So that's why I I largely agree. In a normal book reading world, when I'm reading this book over a week, I probably would have just kept reading to see what happens next, because that's really what motivates me to read. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And so I probably wouldn't notice that there's 120 pages of not much happening because I would read the next chapter, which I'm assuming something is going to happen because nothing happened in this <laughs> section. So something needs to happen. The The other thing I think is a little bit why this is a, a little bit of a slog is those first few hundred pages that we read, we are jumping all around the country. We're in Texas, we're in Maine, we're in Vermont, we're in Nebraska, as we sort of bounce from character to character. Yep. Now, most of our characters are in one location, and so we're really just sort of seeing them interact and not bouncing around. And we don't get any scenes with Flag, Lloyd, Trash Can Man, or anything that's going on in Vegas. And so after having that sort of king being able to jump places and see what's going on in places to spend... 120 pages, four chapters in this very parochial setting, talking about the same things, did not help with the pacing of the story. All that said, King's still a good writer. I still can't wait to see what happens next. I'm looking forward to next episode. I am too. So thank you. That's all for this episode of Two Guys. (laughs) Not so fast, Sean. We have a lot more to talk about here. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. So, so Jay, there are some themes that are different and not repetitive. Why don't you enlighten me? Sure. So one of the things that kind of stood out to me was the fact that in this part of the book where we're still talking about having committee meetings and group decisions and votes and second those votes and all this stuff, what's going on here is that there's a lot of growing up happening. This is happening at like the individual level. This is happening at the community level and maybe even to a little bit at the nation level. Hmm. From an individual level, Larry, who is uh, the character who has shown most change and the most growth in this book, period. I assume he's still got a ways to go. Like this book is, we're we're a little bit past the halfway mark at this point. Larry's probably still going to continue to evolve. But he has this wonderful encounter that you alluded to with the judge. And that's probably the, the high point of this whole 120 or so pages. Because the judge is an awesome character. And I love his, his like lust for life. And even though he's a, a you know, fairly old man at this point, and he's lived a long life and experienced lots of things, 
he has a zest for life that not a lot of the other characters do. And and I think that's a wonderful aspect to his character. Right. But one of the things that shows some of the, the growing that Larry is continuing to do is that the judge gives Larry some advice. And he says, he, he sees Larry's like kind of hemming and hawing about a big decision. And, and the judge says, live with it. For God's sake, Larry, grow up. Develop a little self-righteousness. He's basically saying like, you can't just stand in that that fork in the road forever. Eventually, you're going to have to make a decision, choose a direction, and accept the consequences, but also embrace whatever good things come with that decision. But that's part of being an adult. You can't just wait and put off all these decisions in your life. I saw that as a just one example of a lot of the characters growing up at the individual level. So you're saying that Larry needs to make a stand? I guess you could put it that way, yes. Just to add to my rant, Jay, one of the things I didn't mention is that characters like the judge, you point out, is such a great character. I wish we would have seen more of him Yeah. before we got to this point, because I think that scene would have had a lot more impact, not just on Larry, but on the judge himself. And the same with when Larry makes what I think is an important growing decision is when Nadine tries to come to him and say, I need you to choose me. Mm -hmm. And Larry actually makes a decision at that point and chooses Lucy. The problem is, is we barely know Lucy. And so I don't think that that has the impact that it could have had. Because again, she's sort of the secondary minor character. Yeah. And and both the judge and Lucy are characters who joined Larry's group on the road to to Boulder. And we only had one scene with Larry's group once Lucy and the judge were part of it. And it was the judge, another great scene, the judge giving Larry some advice about Lucy. Yeah. So we we just got this tiny glimpse. And then basically the next time we see the judge is this scene. And you're right. If we had spent maybe just one, if there had been maybe one more scene with Larry and, and his group of travelers, we could have gotten to know the judge a bit better. We could have gotten to know Lucy a bit better. And then later on, we could see whatever happens to those characters later in the book would have more of an impact. Right. So you mentioned three things, people, community, and nation. Tell me about community, Jay. Well, we see that the community is growing. It's growing in the just number of people in it, which is further accelerating the other part of the community growth, which is the formation of structure and government, if you will. They're forming these committees. They're adopting the Constitution. They're adopting the Bill of Rights. They decide they need law and order a sheriff. They need a sheriff. They need, to, they need to get rid of all the dead bodies. Right. So all of these things demand, this community demands structure and, and, and demands these like features. So they're figuring it out. And that's, that's also part of why this, this part of the book wasn't all that fun because it's a bunch of bureaucracy and logistics. <laughs> it's like, well, what, what are we going to do about this? All right, let's vote on it. Okay, we have a decision. What about the next issue? Done. Next issue. It's not interesting. It's certainly not as interesting as a guy who can do magic doing evil things to people. <laughs> right. Maybe it's not a, a good thing. It's, you know... More crucifixions, please. But, but that's more interesting. So, but that's part of how this community is growing. Yeah. This community, as it grows, is sort of the, the seed pod of what could become another nation. 
in adopting the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights and other other types of representative government that you know are built into those things, there is like at least the hope, if not the promise, that this this could be the reignition of the United States or some nation that resembles it. Right. However, a lot of that is undercut by the idea that the super flu brought about the end of the United States, not just the end of all the people who lived in it, but what it represented, the promise that it had for its people. And I think one of the characters actually says something along those lines, where I think it's Franny who says that this is the death of the United States. I don't see how you could ever grieve for a whole country, uh, but I guess you can. I did think it was interesting how it's the United States specifically, too, that I, we've kind of talked about how King wrote this story as a story about the United States, not about the world. We even made jokes in, our, was in a recent episode about how, like, how come nobody from Canada or Mexico is, you know, migrating to Colorado? <laughs> it just seems like everything is U.S.-centric here. And yeah. so even in Franny's reaction to the devastation of the superflu, she's saying it's the death of the United States. It's not necessarily the death of all civilization. It's not the death of the world. It's the death of, a, of the United States as a, as a country, as a, as a symbol, as an idea. So I think that kind of undercuts my idea that this boulder free zone could someday grow into a, a nation. Right. The best they're going to do is a simulacrum of, of the United States. And I think they all realize that. And as, as of, of course, it's Glenn who starts to put that into work. He's the one who suggested, let's do the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and mm -hmm. the Star Spangled Banner. But they all realize that despite them getting goosebumps, you know, when Franny sings the Star Spangled Banner, and that's one of the first points when Larry makes a stand is when He's like, I'm not going to be on this committee. Why would I ever be on this committee? And then they start singing the Star Spangled Banner. And he's all like, God damn it. Yeah, I'm going to be on this. I'm an American. I'm going to be on this committee and I'm going to kick ass. At least he was wearing clothes when he sang it this time. Well, that's true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I do think it, it's definitely undercut. And they realize like that what they had was lost. Whatever they're going to create is going to be new. Yeah. There is a lot of talk as we talk about the nation that there are two, if not nations, groups forming here. There's the one in Boulder and the one in Vegas. Mm -hmm. And that much like the Cold War, they each have some sort of sphere of influence yeah. over what, what's happening. I think it's the judge who says like, well, he's got the seven states over there on the other side of the Rockies, which I guess... Goes everywhere from Washington down through California, including Nevada, Arizona, Utah, Wyoming, and whatever. Yeah, and, and then, you know, we've got the other side of the mountains. And different characters use different metaphors to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Harold using that magnet metaphor to feel like I'm getting pulled over there. And Nadine feels a drawing as, as, as she goes over there. But there's these two, I guess, spheres of influence that that everyone's trying to control. And that's where the spies come in as, as sort of this important part of the sphere of influence. It, it very much is written like somebody who grew up in the Cold War. And I think it's in Dance Macabre that King says one of his earliest memories is being in a movie theater when Sputnik is announced. And so yeah. 
it's not hard to imagine that this is something that is influencing King's writing is, is the Cold War. And what's interesting, too, though, is that like the Boulder Free Zone has decided uh, on this plan of sending off three spies to infiltrate Flag's Dominion. But as far as we know, Flag has not done the, the reverse of that. But he has established at least two minions uh, in the Free Zone, mm. in Harold and Nadine. And in a sense, Flag doesn't really need to send a spy because he has this he has access to magic. And through that, you can influence these people who are already there, who are already part of this community and trusted members of it. He's already overcome the biggest challenge that a spy would have. And you can you can sense that Flag is truly pushing hard on Harold and Nadine. They do have like a better nature that is trying to overcome this influence, but the influence is just too strong. Each time Harold seems to falter, something happens to sort of push him back towards being this minion, the servant of Flag. And it's basically Nadine. Flag seems to be able to manipulate Nadine in a way that he can't manipulate Harold. So he's using Nadine to manipulate Harold. And all he needs to do to get Harold to do his bidding is parade a beautiful woman in front of him and suddenly anything's on the table. Yep. For whatever reason, Nadine is especially susceptible to Flag's influence. She's had this idea that she's like this chosen vessel her whole life and everything. So she's just this perfect target for Flag's type of, of manipulation. That's another part of this spheres of influence thing. We've got the two spheres and we've got two sets of spies or, or spies of a sort in both camps. Right. And I think part of the reason Flag doesn't need spies is because he doesn't really care what's going on in Boulder. I think he gets the sense that they're unorganized or not posing a threat to him. So why does he need to even worry about what's happening over there? He can continue to build up whatever he's building up in Vegas and do whatever whenever he wants. And especially if he knows, which we assume he might, because there seems to be some sort of connection between Mother Abigail and Flag, that if Mother Abigail's gone, maybe they don't have that power. I think they talk a couple times in the book about there being some sort of balance. I think this is Glenn moving over from the rationality side to the irrationality, right? Like, yeah, it's almost like the Sith. There can only be two, and <laughs> there'll be perfect balance in the Force between Abigail and Flag. And uh oh, Abigail's gone. And you know, at some point, I think. Glenn's like, well, maybe that's okay because if I had to worship her, I, I don't know if I'd be okay with that, like having a theocracy with this old woman involved. Yeah, it is a little bit strange. And the last thing that makes these two spheres of influence really interesting to us is that it's a little bit like a, a thinny. Mm. We get this line that, that these two spheres kind of connect in a magical place, that with flag in the West, the old woman in the East... And here the magic flew both ways, mixing, making its own concoction that belonged neither to God nor Satan, but which was totally pagan. And that to me is like, that's that layer underneath that I keep bringing forth about how, yeah, this is an overtly, or at least on the surface, a Christian story. It's good versus evil, but more specifically God versus the devil mm -hmm. kind of thing. But I keep saying, well, what, what's underneath that? Characters like Abigail choose to see the things that, that help her as God 
and the things that that would hurt her as the devil because she's a, a Christian and she's a very religious person. But we're coming at this from a Dark Tower perspective. The Dark Tower is not a religious thing. It's a magical thing. It's a, a fantasy thing. It's a sci-fi thing. So this magic is part of what could be from the Dark Tower. Yep. And these two spheres of influence are basically still just good and evil, the white and the and chaos. This is sort of um, a glimpse at the layer beneath the Christian understanding that the characters have of this. And it's just a big thinny, too. Can we point out that where this thinny exists is basically the Rocky Mountains, right? Like that's the, this borderland. You know what else lies there, Jay? The Overlook Hotel. Oh. If you really want to make this a Stephen King uh, thinny area. That, I hadn't thought of that. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah, I don't know if it's brilliant, but I, I noticed it. I'm starting to get sold that maybe there is some redeeming pieces to this section of the book, uh, Jay. Is there anything else that, that might push me over the edge that makes me say, all right, th- there was, there's something here? Yeah, I had a section in my notes that I called M-O-O-N. That spells doom. Because we get to meet a version of, of Tom Cullen who refers to himself as God's Tom. Mm. And this is when he's under hypnosis. Yep. This version of Tom has like a, a prescience that scares the crap out of the other characters. But it also kind of gives them the confidence that this is probably a good idea to, to, to choose him as one of the spies. Right. But they ask him questions like, are you the same Tom that Nick met in Oklahoma? Uh, are you the same Tom we know when you're awake? And he says, yes, but I am more than that Tom. I'm God's Tom. So this is putting that God layer on things. But maybe that's just how, how Tom Cullen understands the, the world. But basically, there's, a, there's so much more to Tom than the, the childlike man that he is. He has, you know, he's got a little bit of the shine or something, right? Mm-hmm. And they can tap into this and, and, and talk to him in this sort of state when, only when he's hypnotized. And it's, it's a way for them to maybe understand how his brain is working all the time. Right. You know, like when he makes these connections about credit card ads, you know, signs that he collected and, and arranged in his living room even though he doesn't know what any of the words on the signs mean, but he somehow knows that they're all credit cards. Like there's a lot going on with Tom then that isn't obvious. And definitely not surface level. And that's what makes them think like this might actually work. Right. Because he's got a cover story that seems like it would work. And perhaps he won't draw the attention of folks because he'll be collecting information passively and be able to return it to us. Again, it's not clear what they'll do with that information or what the, what the hope is. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't think the, I don't think like Nick and and Stu and Larry have thought that far ahead. They just know like this might be able to help us at some point, but it all creeps them out too. Yeah. Because I think this is that other layer of Nick especially, right? Like Nick is we saw that scene early on where he disagrees with where Mother Abigail's coming from even though he had the dreams about her and he's had dreams about Flag. He still feels I don't believe this stuff. Like I'm an atheist at heart and mm-hmm. whatever. But I think when 
he sees this version of Tom and knows that it's his idea to do this. I think that that starts to be like, whoa, what am I doing here? And yeah. And what, what's the bigger thing that's happening that I'm unaware of? And I think the, the really cool thing about Tom's, the God's Tom version of himself is that I think it, it supports Nick's intuition that Tom as a spy will bring back the, the highest fidelity information. Yeah. If you ask an average person to just pay attention to a thing for a few minutes and then ask them to tell you every detail they remember, it's going to be very little of it. But if they took a photo of that and then shared that photo with you, you would get all of the information that was there. So sending a spy in and then having them remember things and come back and report it, same deal. But it seems like if we send Tom in, he's going to come back and if they hypnotize him and talk to God's Tom, he's going to remember everything. Yeah. He almost already knows stuff. He has probably the most accurate description of Flag in that he says he looks like anybody. And that's the scariest thing about Flag is that he changes his appearance depending on who he's talking to. He changes his appearance and to suit his needs at the moment. It's not that he has devil horns and looks like a demon. <laughs> he just looks like an average guy, so average that you can't ever pick him out of a crowd. It's part of him being dim right? He just blends in. And so he looks like anybody. That did make me kind of question like, all right, we've, seems like we've made a good case for sending Tom as a spy. Right. But this version of Tom or, or access to this underlying layer of Tom, I almost think he would be a better like Oracle for them. Keep him with them, keep him safe and occasionally hypnotize him and ask him questions. Don't don't put him in danger. Don't send him away. He seems to have a connection and an ability to report on that connection that no one else has. He knows stuff that it wouldn't be possible to know at this point. Right. Or that he shouldn't know being in a his oddly decorated ranch house in Boulder. <laughs> uh-huh. Like he has this view into things that he obviously shouldn't. And so something more is going on there. Yep. I'm still not convinced that this is a great section, but there was some good stuff here. You've already mentioned a couple of Dark Tower thinnies. Let's talk about some others. So you mentioned earlier about how King had discussed this thinny type area. And I just wanted to read some of the rest of that quote, Jay. And that is, Nadine felt it as kind of mystic event, a border crossing. It was as if these mountains were no man's land between two spheres of influence. And so Nadine can feel that thinny too. And it, it makes sense that she feels it being having that connection with, with flag, but like she sees it and feels it and knows that this mountain is, is a key area. Yeah, for sure. I have a couple of thinnies in my notes. I'll start with the thinnest one in, in my pile of thinnies. <laughs> and that's one where in one of Nadine's flashbacks, somebody speaks to her from like the, the Ouija board, I guess, and says, we are in the house of the dead, Nadine, or it's something that the, the it is written on the page, right? Spelled out, and yeah. uh, and the the house of the dead kind of reminded me of the halls of the dead that we have encountered many times in the Dark Tower books, and also I think in this book. Yeah, I think so too. Yep. So, house of the dead. I mean, it probably has hallways. So. <laughs> House of the Dead has Halls of the Dead, right? Okay. It also has a Chimney of the Dead. 
the half bathroom of the dead, <laughs> the front porch of the dead, the foyer of the dead. Speaking of that Ouija board, so she used it when she was in college, mm-hmm. and then she finds it again when they're in Boulder and uses it to directly speak with Flag to get an idea of what she should be doing. And she says it was a tool she would only use once, only dared to use once. And even a poorly made tool can serve its purpose to break open a door, to close a window, to write a name. And that reminded me of some of the Dark Tower pieces when Eddie needs to carve a key to open up the door that they draw in the sand to uh, bring Jake over. Um, the idea that there's a tool that will be used once and it it will open a, a door or a thinny to get to places. Yeah, I think that's a great thinny. It's a thinny about creating thinnies. Woo, we're meta thinnying and nice. Another thinny that I found was one of the characters is having these vivid dreams about monsters in the mountains. He calls them trolls, hideous creatures with bright green eyes, oversized heads, and short-fingered powerful hands, strangler's hands, idiot trolls. And I thought that this was a pretty good description of the slow mutants, especially in Little Sisters of Valoria. There seem to be slow mutants in more places than just that passage under the mountain from the gunslinger. Yep. But this seems like this dream is a dream about slow mutants. Yeah, I'll, I'll allow it. I, I, I thank you for allowing it. My pleasure. The last thing I have is that during one of the many committee meetings we read about, <laughs> they're, they're trying to figure out when to have their next vote. And Glenn then said that he had intended to address the committee on the subject of our scouts or spies or whatever you want to call them. But he wanted to make a motion instead that we meet to discuss that on the 19th. And I thought the 19th, eh? <laughs> They're going to vote on the 19th. That can't be a coincidence. Uh, I mean, it could be. There's usually only 30 or 31 days in a month. So every month has a 19th, every single one, even February. Even February. It's time for that most popular of sections of the show, yucking it up. I'll kick us off. The really gross thing that I found in this section was when Harold, on his first day of the, the, what is it, the burial committee? Yes. He's trying to be a little strategic, and he's like really careful about what he eats that morning, because he figures he's going to be queasy and nauseated all day anyway. So his choice is he eats a can of pie filling. It's something that the book calls Berry's Apple Pie Filling. And after he moves his first body, he gets sick and then runs outside and vomits. So he's vomiting apple pie filling. Right. But that's pretty gross. But the fact that he's just eating apple pie filling out of a can, like, and it's probably cold, <laughs> you know, room temperature. Yeah. Ah, I think I'm more grossed out by eating a can of apple pie filling <laughs> than of him throwing it up later. Beggars can't be choosers of the apocalypse. You just eat whatever canned stuff is around, I guess. I suppose. Harold has been the character we've seen more descriptions of actual, like, specifically what he's eating more than anybody else. Yeah. Whether it's Pop-Tarts or the fictitious, non-existent, chocolate-covered payday bars. <laughs> and now a can of Berry's apple pie filling. 
but he seems to make a lot of bad food choices. Like you say, beggars can't be choosers. Everything's like you can have anything you want as long as it's in a can for the most part. Right. But isn't there a can of stew or soup or something like why? Why pie filling? Oh, Harold would love to put stew in a can. (laughs) All that talk of food makes me wonder, like, is Boulder a place where they're going to be able to grow things the next year? They probably should have stayed in Nebraska where they had these lush cornfields and places where they could grow stuff. I don't know if Boulder lends itself well to a agrarian lifestyle. Otherwise, they are going to be eating out of cans for a while. I personally do not know enough about the Boulder and surrounds to, to answer that question. Yeah. I know they can grow coors, but that's about it. What else you got for yucking it up, Jay? So the other yucking it up moment was when, again with Harold, on the burial committee, he's having all of these wonderful experiences with these truckloads of dead bodies. And the first time he's there to witness the truck empty out into the, the giant grave that they've dug, he's haunted by the sounds that the bodies make when they land on the ground. Mm. We've had some pretty you know, interesting descriptions of them. It's like cordwood and some of the bodies are stiff, some aren't from rigor mortis, etc. These sounds that King doesn't even describe for us, but it just tells us his reaction. Yeah. He didn't mind watching them fall out too much. It was the sound that got him. The sound they made when they hit what was going to become their shroud. King, I think, very cannily leaves that to our imagination. So I'm thinking of something like kind of in between the classic potato sack thump from like the Charlie Brown cartoons and wet meat hitting the floor. <laughs> Put those two together in my mind. That's pretty gross sound so that's why i added it to the yucking it up section how about you you have any so jay because nothing happened in this section i have no yucking it up wah wah all right well it's time for that part of the show where we tell you that you can support the show and get access to exclusive patreon content such as bonus podcast episodes by becoming a patron visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower to learn more Yeah, and our two most recent bonus episodes were synced director commentary style coverage of two Stephen King movie adaptations. The first one was 1922, and the more recent one was Gerald's Game. Yeah. Become a patron and get access to awesome content like that. And you might also, depending on which level you join at, uh, be able to help us decide what will be our next bonus episodes. Indeed. Sean, let's get into some fun stuff. I mean, we, we did find some fun things in this section of the book. There's a few here. Why don't you kick us off? We've noted a few times now that King has made this a very late 80s novel with some of his changes. He's made multiple references to Pee Wee Herman and way too many references to Roger Rabbit. And in this section, he mentions the stupid guy on MTV, Randy. And I don't know if you remember, Jay, but I distinctly remember Randy. It's Randy of the Redwoods. And it was sort of this hippie character who would do these like interstitials on MTV. And he eventually got so popular that I think he made a third party run for president. What? (laughs) I, I can't remember if it was the 88 election or the 92 election. I'm guessing it was probably the 88 election, but 
yeah, it was a comedian who, Randy for president, man. And he was sort of this old hippie guy. Anyhow, it really dates the book. Like when you come across these references and you're like, oh yeah, I guess I do remember that thing that happened that was sort of a non-entity. Do you remember Randy in the Redwoods? Not even a little bit, no. I'll put a clip in the show notes of uh, one of his little bits from MTV. If you don't remember, don't worry. It's not worth remembering. I mean, that was back in the, the days when MTV actually showed music videos. Yeah. And they also had other cool things like original cartoons, like Aeon Flux and stuff. But I, I do not remember Randy. Yeah, you're not missing much. And I think King might spell it wrong because I think it's Randy with two E's instead of a Y. So No, I think the person who spells it with two E's spelled it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Speaking of our coverage of 1922, there's a, a line in, in this section when... Um, when Harold got back from his first day on cleanup duty, when he came back, he had to splurge and take a two-bucket shower. <laughs> yeah. And this reminded me of in 1922, in the scene after they had committed a horrible murder, they realized, get both buckets yep. so we can clean this up. I guess you need two buckets when the job's really dirty. Larry at one point says, there's an old saying, Navy, I think. That goes, whatever can go wrong, will go wrong. You don't even have to say that. You could just say Murphy's Law. Doesn't everybody know what Murphy's Law is? It seems like Larry doesn't, though. Maybe Murphy was an admiral or something. It just seems weird that he doesn't like, there's an old saying, I think. Yeah, we all call it Murphy's Law. That's what we call it, dude. (laughs) And don't act like you're the only one who knows this. Oh, there's this old saying I remember from times of yore. Yeah, everyone knows that saying, Larry. You're not anything special. I think that's just Larry being... A little bit tongue in cheek with everything he says. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Like, eh, there's this old trick I learned in the army, and then he shows you how to tie a bow knot, you know, in your shoelaces <laughs> kind of thing. So there's this passage where Stu is telling Franny about this amazing thing that happened to him once on a late, you know, overnight shift where he was working at the gas station. And basically, he meets Jim Morrison. Yeah. And even more amazingly, it's after Jim Morrison died. So not only did he have this encounter with a famous person, but he met somebody who everyone in the world assumed or knew was dead. So this is just this incredible encounter. But as Stu's building up to who this person is and he's adding more and more detail, my mind jumped to Elvis instead of Morris. Yep. I thought he was going to tell me that the king of rock and roll was driving through Texas and needed to fill up his gas tank. But no, King says, nope, it was Jim Morrison. And I'm like, okay, I, I still dig it. And it made me even wonder, like, is this one of the things that King changed from the first edition to the, the complete and uncut edition? But I don't think it is. I think it was always Morrison, right? Yeah, or, or this wasn't in there at all. Yeah, I did, I did think it was a nice twist because it did seem like he was building up to Elvis, especially when you and I grew up and there was always things in the tabloids at the grocery store in the 80s about Elvis being alive somewhere. I I further like the fact, and I think this might be why he chose Morrison over Elvis, is that he describes him by saying he had the eyes of a man who has been trying to look into the dark for a long time and has maybe begun to see what is there. I think if I ever meet that man flag, his eyes might look a little like that. Mm -hmm. And then Franny says something along the lines of like, oh, would it be amazing if he was one of the ones who survived? the plague and and he came here and then Stu like corrects her and says you know what 
if he's alive, he's not going to be on this side of the mountains. Which I, I guess, if you think about the way Flag is generally represented in this book, not necessarily in other incarnations of the character, he does kind of read like Jim Morrison. Oh yeah, he's totally the Lizard King man. Yeah, he's like everything from the 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 denim outfit to the you know the the hairstyle, the whole thing. It's King just he peppers in a little bit of detail here and there about what Flag might sort of kind of look like beyond the looking like everyone or anyone. Right. And also with like how Jamie Sheridan portrayed him in the miniseries. Yeah, he was just like channeling Morrison in that that role. So yeah, I, I think this is King maybe just sort of like incepting the idea of what Flag looks like by saying Jim Morrison and Flag are sort of the same person. There's this great line where I think this is along the lines of talking about Leo. And I think the judge is telling Larry, a boy does not need a father unless he's a good father, but a good father is indispensable. And the judge goes on to say, no hope, but Mount Hope. Mm. He's telling a story of when he was a child walking through some cemeteries and they called him Mount Hope. And I like the call out of Mount Hope because, again, we've mentioned before how King pictures the stand as his Lord of the Rings. And of course, there's Mount Doom, and now we've got a Mount Hope to sort of be the other side of that, right? There's no Doom, but Mount Doom. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a great story about a character and his father. And also, you know, King writes about a lot of characters who have absentee fathers or terrible fathers. And and have so many characters in this story. Some of them have good fathers. Some of them have not so good fathers. And here's another example of a great father. And Franny's dad is that that perfect version of of a father that 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 King writes. So it's nice to see that at least statistically, if you have enough characters, you're going to have a couple of good fathers involved. And I like the idea of uh, this is part of the judge to what you're talking about before trying to get Larry to grow up Mm -hmm. because Larry doesn't have a father. Right. I I can't remember the the reasons why he's brought up by just his mom. He was it was like the Bobby Garfield story. Except except that Bobby's dad died. Yeah. And he has a chance here to be a good father to Leo. And so I think the judge is trying to give him a a template of what to what to be like. Right. There's a, a, a moment in this that where it made me feel like a fool for always adding up every number I see in King's books to see if they add up to 19 somehow or another. Because... Uh, one man stated ominously that if the chapter numbers were added, you could always come out to 31, the number of chapters in the Book of Revelations. And they said this in this like really mocking tone. Like, like you, you, if you want to, you can find this, this nonsense if you look hard enough. And right. didn't I just like make a whole big fuss about how they're going to vote on the 19th of the month? <laughs> like, ugh, I just feel like a dum-dum now. And doesn't someone stand up and, and say, actually, if you add those numbers, you get a different number. It's not 31. Yeah, he didn't even add them, right? Even the devil can quote scripture. Uh-huh. I think we've got time for one more, Jay. Well, I really liked the mashup of Edgar Allan Poe and King, where one of the characters is referring to the raven, and it transforms into this person sitting, still sitting, sitting as he had sat before. All right, well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. 
Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we finish book two of The Stand, chapters 57 through 60. I'm sure it'll be a lot more exciting than these. I hope so. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. What's this podcast about again? Oh, yeah, Stephen King stuff. I'm surprised King didn't put his uh, potty humor on it and say shitting, still shitting, shitting as he had shat before. <laughs>